Hello, we're John Apostolic Church family and those who have joined with us as visitors for our online worship service. I just want to thank you so much for being here with me today. I first just want to say thank you to all of those of you who've reached out to my family and I over the past couple of weeks. My dad, Mel Bobst, passed away recently, very unexpectedly. He had a stroke that caused some bleeding on his brain on the 24th of October, and by the 26th, he was gone to heaven. It feels surreal, but by God's grace, we're processing through it all day by day and and really embracing the emotions of it all. From being ecstatically joyful to consider what my dad's experiencing right now face to face with the Lord in heaven, to being very, very sad to not having him here with us on earth anymore. You know, my parents would often come to hear me preach at church or watch us in recent months, of course, here online. This is my first sermon where I won't be able to talk to him afterwards. I could always count on hearing from my dad at the end of a sermon. I'm proud of you, man. He came to Christ uh, when he was in his 30s, and that actually happened before I was born. But throughout my life, I knew that he always maintained an awareness of what his life was like before he accepted Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior. He knew what he had been saved from, and as a result, it kept him soft-hearted towards people, no matter the circumstances. I couldn't help but think of my dad and how he would have responded to the woman we're about to read about today from the Gospel of John chapter 8 as we continue in our sermon series that we've titled Having the Heart of Jesus. Our goal is to see the heart of Jesus on the pages of the Bible and understand that by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's the benchmark for our hearts as well. We'll begin in John chapter 8 and verse 1. It says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. You know, it's really important to understand the context of this scene. It can be tempting to think that this group who brought this woman before Jesus was like a stereotypical angry mob that you'd see in an old Western movie. You can imagine pitchforks and torches looking for vigilante justice. We can see, of course, that they did have some wrong motives. It says that they were looking to trap Jesus with his words. But they were really attempting to compare the words and actions of Jesus with what they knew God had spoken to issues, especially in this case, to the issues of sexual sin. 
right from the Ten Commandments, given from God to Moses for the people, it was stated very, very clearly. In Exodus 20 and verse 14, it says, you must not commit adultery. God then went on to prescribe the punishments for breaking the law. In so doing, God was demonstrating how seriously he despised sin. Adultery, of course, having sex with someone other than your spouse, was a capital offense, punishable by death. The teachers of religious law and Pharisees, at at certain points and at different times throughout the Gospels, we can see that they were spiritual hypocrites and bullies. In many cases, they had added their own laws on top of the laws given by God. But in this particular case, they were acting as the judicial arm of God, aligned with his statutes. Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 22 said, if a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. In this way, you will purge Israel of such evil. You know, I've heard it asked before, where was the man in the scenario that we just read from John chapter eight? It doesn't say in the text. Sometimes I hear preachers making this a gender issue, insinuating that maybe the man was set free. There's nothing, though, in the text to support that conclusion. If we're going to assume things not in the text, let's assume that this zealous crowd had already exacted justice on the man and he was killed, because that's what God said should happen. Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10 says, if a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the man and the woman who have committed adultery must be put to death. It's really important to be clear so that we understand divine justice. Putting this woman to death was not man's idea. It was God's idea. God hates sin. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 16 says, there are six things that God hates. No, seven things he detests. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that kill the innocent, a heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong, a false witness who pours out lies, a person who sows discord in a family. In order to fully understand love, and the Bible does say God is love, It requires understanding hate. And in this particular situation that we see, God hates sexual sin, including the pain that it it causes those who have been victimized by it. As you continue to read through Leviticus chapter 20, God goes into explicit detail about sexual sin. I'll just pick up two more verses from that chapter to help us reinforce the point. First, verse 13, it says, If a man practices homosexuality, having sex with another man, as with a woman, both men have committed a detestable act. They must be put to death, for they are guilty of a capital offense. And then in verse 15, If a man has sex with an animal, he must be put to death, and the animal must be killed. You know, can I ask you, when was the last time you were in church And the preacher actually read those verses in that service. 
I thought back and I can't remember the last time I actually heard somebody read those verses. So let me just tell you, thank you're welcome for me actually reading those parts of the Bible. Verse after verse, we see from the law, it identifies sin and then the associated punishment. It's also critically important to understand what an outrageous thing it was for Jesus to say, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. If that had been the standard throughout the Mosaic law, nobody would have ever received a punishment for their sin. It was always flawed, sinful humans who were tasked with dispensing justice. It makes you wonder as you read through this account, were God the Father and Jesus out of step with one another here? Like, is the kingdom divided in this moment? No, they were still in perfect unity. What we're seeing here is a window into the heart of Jesus and the love of God. It is foreshadowing a fundamental shift that was coming through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus said those words, let he who is without sin cast the first stone to point to himself as the solution for this sin. The people didn't see it in this scenario yet, but we know that's what was coming at the cross. He was the only one according to this new benchmark, who had the right to pick up a stone and hurl it at this woman, but he didn't. Instead, he saved her life. You know, we sing a song here in our church that's taken from the book of Amos chapter five. There's a line in it that says, let justice roll on like a river. What Jesus did here for the woman by inserting a new standard into the punishment structure for adultery at first appears to lack justice. You know, consider all of the other people who had previously been killed for that behavior. Sin requires punishment. Extending mercy or clemency to one person without extending it to another is unjust. But Jesus was not betraying the law of God by protecting this woman from receiving the punishment that she so rightly deserved and he was not excusing her sinful behavior. What we're seeing here, in fact, is like a a changing of the season, if you will. The need for divine justice would soon have the penalty satisfied. Jesus knew that the punishment for her sin was still death, but it wouldn't be her death, it would be his death on the cross that would pay the penalty. We had a new covenant moment being inserted into the old covenant timeline, demonstrating the gift that we can now all receive because of the shed blood of Jesus. His answer upheld justice without foregoing clemency. He did not say that this woman should not be stoned. That would have been in opposition to the law. Jesus said in Matthew chapter five, beginning in verse 17, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. But Jesus also had no intention of saying to that crowd, yeah, go ahead, let her be stoned because he did not come to destroy, but to seek and save those who were lost. His reply contains justice, 
love, clemency, and truth in full measure. For the first time ever, there was one on the earth who was sinless, a truly righteous arbiter. His is the voice of perfect justice that pierced the hearts in that group like a spear, and one by one they exited until only two remained, the adulterous woman and Jesus, the embodiment of grace and truth. Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? Jesus asked. No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. That's how God sees every Christian. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that is not a license to sin. Jesus did not give his approval for immorality. Go and sin no more, he told her. We see that Jesus is in fact giving a judicial ruling, but it is sin that he condemns, not the woman. One who approved of immorality would have said, neither will I condemn you, now go ahead and do whatever you please. Behave however you'd like. But he did not say that. Jesus, God, still hates sin. And Jesus is not turning a blind eye to sinful behavior. He gives us a perfect template here for how to confront sin in the world while extending mercy to sinners. Too often the the words of Jesus from these verses are twisted by those who don't really know him. You'll sometimes hear hard-edged, judgmental people rail against sin and in the process rail against people. Or on the other side, you'll hear people excuse sin in a misguided attempt to extend love to sinners. Neither of those approaches align with the heart of Jesus. True love must include telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. We cannot attempt to redefine sin, hoping to pacify the guilty conscience of sinners. We're not really loving people if we create a standard for sin that God doesn't hold. I really believe that one of the greatest challenges facing Christians today is to find the words to speak out against sinful behavior, including, unfortunately, behavior that is now proudly embraced and even celebrated by those within some Christian circles. If the Bible says that a particular activity is sin, it is sin, no matter how badly we want to be compassionate to people. Redefining sin does not lead people to Jesus. That is unsanctified mercy, and it leads people back to themselves to be right in their own eyes. Our culture has wrongly equated loving everyone with approving everything. One of the ways, though, that I demonstrate my love for you is to speak out against sin, especially as it relates to things like we've seen in these verses, like adultery. You know, there's no mention in the verses that we read about the victims of this adultery, the husband or the wife who has been cheated on. We must have a love that extends not only to the perpetrator, but also to the victims of sin in equal measure. The response that Jesus gives in this exchange and his subsequent death on the cross allows for the possibility for him to have a conversation with the betrayed spouses in this situation. You know, imagine if he ran into the husband of the adulterous woman the next day and that man asked Jesus, 
what did you do? How could you have let her get away with this behavior? Jesus could have looked him in the eye and said, justice will be served through my death to come on the cross. You know, in my previous corporate career before I came on staff of the church, I worked with a guy who was very sexually promiscuous. I must admit to you that it was a real challenge to maintain a relationship with him without giving him the impression that I approved of his behavior, but also not to condemn him as a person. He had the opportunity to take a a job overseas, and before he left, I kind of took him aside and said, you know, you should probably check the the laws in this new country you're moving to. You know, in some countries, they'll, they'll cut out your tongue if you spit on the street. You should be careful. I want you to come back home to Canada with all of your body parts intact. As you can imagine, we we both had a laugh, but I'll tell you, it opened up the door for a conversation to speak about things of faith. We're not doing people any favors if we turn a blind eye to their destructive behaviors and act as though their sin will never have consequences. At the same time, we're meant to model grace and mercy and point them to the merciful one, Jesus, who shed his blood for their freedom as much as he shed it for ours. In the same way, we need to find the words to be able to speak truth in love to those in situations that are more complicated and require greater insight and wisdom. That includes other sexual sins that are pervasive in our world today. You know, in that same timeline in my corporate career, there was a a woman on my team, and although she was a Christian and she had even attended Bible school, she got married to another woman. I have to tell you, she was an exceptional team member. I loved working with her and she earned top performance review scores from me and I promoted her a couple of times. I didn't have to tell her, and nor would I in a corporate setting, about what God would say about her life decisions. She knew that her behavior was out of step with God. But I was fiercely protective of her including the culture of our team and making sure that she had a sense of safety and belonging. I regularly prayed, Lord, show me how to love people like you love them and how to hate sin like you hate sin. Can I challenge you today as you consider all of this in the circumstances from your own life and the situations that you run into day by day, especially those of you that have children? You know, we're on the front lines of another culture shift in sexuality and how you handle it will either help draw people to Jesus or will repel people from Jesus, including your own children. As we have the merciful, gracious, and protective heart of Jesus towards people, we're positioned to respond like Jesus. And honestly, the the safest place in the world for a child wrestling through the questions of their sexuality should be with Christian friends and family. When a bully arrives on a playground ready to throw a, a rock at them, as Christians, we should be the ones to step between them and the rock to say, no way, that's not gonna happen on my watch. But then to follow up with an introduction to Jesus, the savior of the world, who is the one who convicts them of sin like he did with us by his Holy Spirit and through his loving kindness leads them to repentance. Understanding the heart of Jesus and having that empathy and compassion and divine justice to grow in our hearts, it positions us to be dispensers of his grace and his truth. 
You know, as we close today, I want to pray for us to recognize the power of Christ in us to navigate through those delicate interactions in the same way that wise words poured out from the heart of Jesus into this situation that he faced, we can align our hearts with his as well. And we can expect to have the same results as we only say what we hear the father saying, and we only do what we see the father doing just like Jesus did. I invite you to respond today to say to Jesus, Lord, I need your heart for these interactions that I'm facing in my life. I want to hate what you hate, and I want to love what you love, Father God. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful that in your word, you give us this beautiful blueprint, God, for how to have interactions with people on this earth, Lord, where we don't compromise your standards, but Lord, we love people unconditionally. God, that is such a paradox and it can only be, that nut can only be cracked, Lord, with your spirit leading us into all truth. God, left to ourselves, we make a mess of those kinds of situations, but by your spirit, Lord, we can have breakthrough and we can see freedom extended, God, to people around the globe, Lord Jesus. So I just pray, Lord, for each one who today even will consider We'll take a moment just to listen to the promptings of your spirit today, Lord, that you're going to lead them. You're going to show them the way, God. God, I pray that we would all, just like I said about my dad, that we wouldn't forget where we came from. That, Lord, we were all sinners dead in our trespasses and you made a way, God. So keep our hearts soft to be able to extend that kind of grace and compassion to others as well. I just pray in Jesus' name, amen.